Good morning to you. Okay, that was like receptivity there. That's good. I'm Rob, and this is Leah, and uh, we want to welcome you to Campus House if this is your first time with us. And um, we've been in First Peter, so actually if you have a Bible or a phone, I'm going to move this for you guys. Um, can you turn to First Peter chapter 3? First Peter is near the end of the Bible, the back of the Bible. And uh, last week we talked about we are free people. <clears throat> Through Christ we've been given a living hope and we have been freed from, from sin and guilt and shame and uh, fear. But we've also been freed up to live differently. So last week the passage talked about in light of our freedom, we, we can have the freedom to abstain from things that would take us away from Jesus. But we, we can also have the freedom to build bridges to the way that we love and the way that we live and serve and even submit to, to authorities and to leaders. And even when that means some sort of suffering for us. Peter writes that, Submission to unbelieving leaders and bosses and spouses helps to bridge, uh, to build a bridge to those who have yet to experience Jesus. And so last week we talked about submission in government and submission to those in authority in the workplace. And today we're going to talk about marriage. And I've asked Leah to join me. We're talking about, next slide is becoming a people of honor. Leah um, is incredibly gifted, and she's an awesome teacher, and she is very, very wise. We've also been married 27 years, and so we thought, uh, as we talk about marriage, then um, it might be cool to do this together, and um, we have talked a lot over the 27 years about um, what it means to uh, actually reflect Jesus. And what is the purpose of, of our marriage? And we've wrestled through a lot of stuff and struggled through a lot of stuff. And, and so um, we thought uh, we would do this together. I, I hope that um, by doing this together, we might better share uh, our heart in, uh, through this passage. And so thank you for doing this. Yes, it's a very active submission to be here because this is a little bit terrifying. <laughs> um, but I'm trusting him and I'm trusting God in this. So thanks for, it really is an honor to be um, able to share with you today because I think that God's design is beautiful. And, I, and I, would, I hope that together we can sort of reframe something that I think has been lost uh, in our culture that is, that is really true and beautiful. Um, what's interesting about Peter's letter to the church is that I think it's probably purposefully fairly vague. There aren't a lot of uh, formulas or specific instructions about how we are to follow his instructions. And I think Rob and I, in our heart uh, to lead you biblically this morning, we're hoping also to not provide you with a list of, uh, of formulas or templates, um, but to really just point to what scripture outlines. I think that the way each couple works this out is unique to that couple. There are certainly truths that scripture points us to. Those are biblical principles, and those are supremely important. Um, but there is some freedom in the way that we walk that out, given our gifts and our unique um, makeup. So we're not here to sell you a formula 
And I hope that you would even be wary of anyone who would want to sell you a formula because the idea is that we are submitting to the Lord and we're trusting him as we walk this out. Uh, we'll be not. selling our books in the back at the end of this. <laughs> we will not. Um, uh, so as we, we know our audience, we know that m- most of you are single, some of you are married, and so um, our hope is that we can maybe sh- share some hopeful uh, words for you as you consider future marriage or as you even wrestle with what it means to walk this out in your current marriage. Um, we already know, <laughs> we've heard from some of you, and, and, and we've lived long enough to know that when, when you use the word submission, and when you talk about submission in marriage, that there's an automatic trigger, that some of you, as soon as you hear that, you, you feel your blood pressure rise, your pupils dilate, and, you're, and you're, <laughs> you know, you're uncomfortable already just by the mere mention of it. And we know that there's a reason for that. We know that, um, that the idea, the concept of submission has been twisted and misused in many ways, and that it's brought about a lot of pain for a lot of people. And we've seen the harm. We've experienced sometimes the harm. And so we understand a visceral response. What we're hoping today to do is to reframe and point back to what is true. Um, Just because we've experienced the twisting of something doesn't mean that we know it in its purest nature. So we're hoping to go back to the purest nature and point to what the Lord has. Um, I know that for some of you women, when you hear this, it it automatically points to this picture of, well, now I'm going to be oppressed. (laughs) And heck no. (laughs) Is the first response. And I know that men, you're like slinking back into your chairs because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm the oppressor, right? (laughs) This is not a model of oppression. This is a model of beauty, a model of love, and a model that's created to design, is designed uh, for joy and for the flourishing. That's what this is about. Um, This morning as we study these seven verses in 1 Peter, um, we're going to look at that, and then we're going to take a look at God's design for marriage, because I think we have to go back and look at that. And then we're also going to look at some words from Paul in Ephesians. Okay. I know I just prayed, but let's pray. God, thank you for this passage, and thank you for the passage in Ephesians and the passage in Genesis. And thank you that your word is true and that we can anchor to it. And so, uh, again, would you remove the obstacles in our way? to see you clearly today. We pray for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what it says in First uh, Peter 3. Actually, before we get there, the, the purpose of submission in Peter's letter is a bit different from the purpose of Paul. Paul in Ephesians is mostly writing to, uh, he's writing to a Christian husbands and and wives, but Peter is writing to a situation, again, we're we're talking to exiles, right? So he's talking to people, uh, to women who have become believers, who have put their faith in Christ, but their husband is still a non-believer. And uh, in that society, the ramifications in in the workplace and in civic life were huge, but also in the family, because Um, For a newly converted wife, uh, her new faith would likely be seen as rebellion. Because in that culture, it was a culture of of submission in civically, right? And so so the wife would automatically submit to whatever 
or convert to whatever religion the husband practiced. And so for her to become a Christian and, and him not to be a Christian would actually have these huge ripple effects in the way that they uh, functioned in, in their society. Disorder in Roman times uh, in the home meant disorder in society. And the same is true in, in our culture. It upset the, the status quo. It's important to note, too, that as Peter is talking to the wives, there would have been, they would have heard this differently than we hear it. Uh, for the wife to have her own separate thoughts or beliefs in that culture was deeply discouraged, right? She was supposed to just follow suit of her husband, except in the matter of, in this case, it's, if he's not following Jesus, and that's where her hope and salvation is, then of course, right, the Lord would call her to put her hope in Jesus. Um, but uh, the words we're about to read from Peter would have been a revolutionary acknowledgement that a woman's own faith is valid and it's important, right? Instead of just saying, instead of the culture's message, which said, woman, it doesn't matter what you think, you do what your husband does, and you think what your husband thinks, and you believe what your husband believes, it would have actually acknowledged her personhood, <laughs> um, her faith in Jesus, that she, she as, a, as a created, um, as a woman created in God's image, that she had uh, the ability to choose to believe in the Lord, um, would have spoken to her personhood. Cool. So this is what Peter says, First Peter 3, 1. In the same way, wives... Submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. In, in the same way that, that you would submit in the, in, to government or in the workplace, Peter's not saying that marriage is like slavery or the IRS. <laughs> he is saying that the motivation for submission is the same across the board. And that motivation is for the sake of the Lord. To have our, our eyes on Jesus affects how we walk out everything else. It's out of reverence for God. Whatever you do, Paul says, do it for the glory of God, right? So Peter explains that there's a, an evangelistic purpose in this as well, so that your husband may be one without words. In that culture, in society at large, it was shameful for the wife to instruct her husband. And so uh, she is to honor him and submit to him without words so that uh, he might see Jesus in her. So she is motivated by her relationship with Jesus to, to build a bridge through the way that she walks this out, and the way that she submits to his leadership. So much like the conversation last week, there is this call to, to live and to love and to serve others in such a way that, that honoring them um, actually has this radical expression of freedom that would lead to an unbelieving spouse to put their faith in, in Christ. I think it's important uh, when we read this passage um, that just because Peter is instructing Christian women who are married to unbelieving husbands, Peter is not suggesting that a believer should marry a non-believer. In fact, Scripture is really clear on that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? 
marriages between believers and unbelievers will be racked with challenges um, because the goals of the spouses will be really different. One partner committed to following Jesus will be continually challenged to do that while also trying to figure out what it looks like to honor someone who's heading in a different direction. That's a very tricky place to be. Um, marriage is essentially two people tethered together <laughs> for their good, for the good of their family, for the good of their communities, for the good of the world. Um, but you can imagine that two people tethered together heading in different directions is, uh, imagine a gunny sack race or a three-legged race, right? Two people heading toward the finish line. Now imagine two different finish lines in two different parts of the field. What would that feel like to cooperate together to get to your finish line? It wouldn't, right? <laughs> it just wouldn't. Um, imagine one devoted to Christ and committed to cooperating in the building and the restoration of God's kingdom, and the other who doesn't have a concept of that, who's working to build maybe their own kingdom, which is what we do apart from Christ. Imagine someone desiring to submit to the wisdom of God, which is very different from human wisdom, and the other submitting to human wisdom, to their own wisdom, or to the wisdom of another teacher. Um, imagine that these uh, differences will come to bear on how they spend their time, how they use their home, how they use their resources, their car, um, how they make decisions to parent their children. Um, these different values, these different understandings of the way the world works will come to bear in the daily lives and will make things challenging. Not to mention the fact that um, if one spouse has an understanding of the concept of grace and is empowered by the Spirit to try to learn to forgive, right, to have the power to forgive, and the other doesn't have that, what would that be like? It's a challenge. Um, marriage is a beautiful gift, but it's difficult. Even if you picture the three-legged race, two people trying to go in the same direction, um, that's not entertaining for us because it's uneventful, right? Um, it, is, it is an event <laughs> for two people to move together toward a destination, and it requires a certain kind of communication and a certain kind of cooperation and a certain kind of submitting to one another and a certain kind of helping one another. That is, um, has its particular challenges. That is marriage in and of it. That is Christian marriage in and of itself, right? It's not a simple thing because it's two people trying to work out what it means to go together. But if we have two different destinations in mind, we're complicating it absolutely unnecessarily, and we're going against what the Lord has called us to. We share this with you now because we know that 95% of you in this room still are in a place where you're uh, preparing to make those decisions. You haven't yet made those decisions. And so the Lord gives his wisdom to us so that we can make those decisions well. That is really part of the purpose of our conversation. In this, in this day and age, women, we have, I mean, I realize that culturally it may not have been the case for these women, but in our culture, we, we get to choose who we marry. And guys, you do too. Um, so I just would warn you against the, I guess, maybe the misconception. Sometimes we 
I don't know, girls, maybe this, I don't know, guys, if this happens for you, but girls, sometimes we come to college and we think, okay, I got four years. I'm going to spend the first couple of years kind of getting settled and focusing really on school. But by my junior year, I hope to find the guy. And then by spring of the senior year, I really hope to have a ring. And that means I could get married. And then I could, you know, we start to set this course of how we think it will go. And sometimes in our own sense of how we think it should go, we start to get concerned. Well, God hasn't brought that Christian guy around yet, but there's this guy over here, and he's, he's an engineer. And... <laughs> I mean, you know, and he's cute and he's nice and I like his family. So maybe that whole following Jesus thing isn't such a big deal. He's kind. He treats his, he treats his dog well. Right? And we sort of miss that we're going to be heading in two different directions. So I just think it's important for us to pay attention. You are at a place where you... Um, you are making important lifelong decisions, especially the covenantal one. Okay, so do it, do it well. Do it prayerfully. A couple caveats with that. One is that there isn't such a thing as the perfect person. And so it's, it's not a matter of settling, but it's also a, a, a matter of, uh, not a matter of elevating this expectation that is apart from God's own call in that. The other caveat is that some of you will choose not to, to marry, and some of you really want to get married, and, and singleness is where you are for a while. And so that's another sermon. Today we're really talking about marriage, but I want to acknowledge that um, this has application across the board when we talk about, um, first of all, submitting to Jesus. Yeah, I think guys and girls alike, as you're, as you're considering um, who you might date, which is really preparation for who you might marry. And it's important to ask yourself the question and to pray and ask the Lord the question. Don't just ask yourself the question. Ask the Lord the question, is this person chasing after God? Not, will they go to church with me without complaining? Not, will they be okay if I send our kids to a Christian school? Are they seeking after the Lord themselves? And are they helping me, or will they help me do the same? Peter goes on with some more instructions for wives. Verse 3. Your beauty should not consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold ornaments or fine clothes. Instead, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very valuable in God's eyes. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also beautified themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and are not frightened by, doing, by anything alarming. So what's Peter saying and what's he not saying? He's not saying, ladies, I think, that you have to shop off the Goodwill rack and you can never wear jewelry and you must walk around with really bad hair. I don't think that that's, I don't think that's the point. Um, he's saying that those things are not the substance of your beauty. Don't pretend that that's what beauty is and don't be fooled that that's what true beauty is. Um, they're not who you are. They're just external things. God who created beauty is the one who gets to define it and he says... Um, that it's more about character than it's about cosmetics. Guys, don't be fooled either, okay? Sometimes we try to fool you. Don't be fooled. 
Peter writes that what's unfading, imperishable, and unshakable is the inner quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Mm, yeah. Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And it's kind of confusing why he uses Sarah as this example of, of uh, the, the role model. You know, because Abraham and Sarah, if you read back through Genesis, Abraham and Sarah made some really poor decisions. And, uh, but the trajectory of their life was one of trust in God. The trajectory of their life was to, to really listen to his calling. And so he says that you're in the mold of Sarah if you do what is good and don't give in to fear that results in hatred and hostility. And so there's this humble confidence and there's this confident humility um, that really is the quality and the character of a godly woman. Uh, verse 7, he turns to guys. Okay, So husbands, in the same way, for the, for the Lord, out of reverence to his name, out of submission to Christ, live with your wives with an understanding of their weaker nature, yet showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. We, weaker nature. There's an, another potentially triggering phrase. <laughs> Externally, you stayed really subdued and civil and even kind. Internally, my guess is that some of you women were about to come off your chair, and some of you guys were trying to sink into yours, right? Weaker nature. Peter is saying that physically, that all, yes, caveat, some women are definitely stronger physically than, than men. As a general rule, guys would would be stronger, but also in the sense of social entitlement and empowerment. That's what he's really speaking to here. Women were weaker in what that culture afforded them in terms of, of rights and power and status. And that is still true in our culture, but it's like a thousand times more prevalent in that culture. So men are called to honor to go against the grain of culture to use whatever strength or influence or power that they have to honor their wives, to lift up their wives. Honor means to give away your power in order to serve. So Peter is subverting, that's what we talked about last week, he's subverting the, the Roman attitude of the inferiority of women. Don't miss that. This was, this was radical words. These were radical words. He's subverting the idea that women are inferior, pointing out that no, actually, women are co-heirs of the that they have the same eternal inheritance. They have the same living hope, that they are heirs. This is a culture where the sons, not the daughters, got the inheritance. Peter says, no, not, not in the kingdom of God. So submission means coming under, but honor means actually lifting up. That's a really cool picture of marriage. And then he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered, that honoring God and honoring one's spouse is absolutely connected. The way that we love and honor uh, God must always overflow into the way that we love and honor our spouse. And the way that we love and honor our spouse will always be a catalyst for loving and honoring God. This passage in 1 Peter 3 isn't meant to be a marriage manual for us. It's not a specific message about 
um, how to, it is a specific message about how to use what's within our power and position in a way to honor the other um, and bless the other for the sake of their knowing Christ. Um, I think that it will be helpful to us, though, to understand this if we zoom out a little bit and understand more about God's design for marriage and more um, also from Peter and Ephesians. So first of all, let's start with some things that we can explore. What's the design and the purpose of marriage in the first place? And secondly, what's the heart of submission and how does that reflect Jesus? You with us? You good? Okay. So our culture is really similar to the Greco-Roman culture that Peter is writing into and in that the whole idea of marriage and of sex and of family had been skewed. And so he and Paul are shepherding people back to this is what God's design is and this is how it is lived out. Ben Stewart, who works with Passion City Church in D.C., wrote, Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. It is the ability to fulfill created intent for all of life, the highest potential will be achieved and the greatest satisfaction experienced if we live in accordance with our creator's intended design. The same is true of marriage. And so the question, what is marriage for? Marriage was designed by God to display something of God and to bless the man and the woman. And so the opening pages of scripture talk about that father son Spirit, the triune God, have always lived in perfect community, in perfect intimacy. And out of that love, they created everything, including mankind. Genesis chapter 1 says, let, God said, let us, triune God, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And then he created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He said it wasn't good for man to live alone. So he designed woman also in his image. And this cuts through a lot of stuff in our, in our society, right? Kathy Keller writes, we are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity, to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity, loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. This means I cannot understand myself if I try to ignore the way that God has designed me or if I despise the gifts he may have given to help me fulfill my calling. If our gender is at the heart of our nature, we risk losing a key part of ourselves if we abandon our distinctive male and female roles. So we are created equal yet unique. We are created with equality. Both are created in the image of God. Both are created for good work. Both are created to create culture and families and civilizations and to build. And yet we are distinct. We are distinct in anatomy. Yeah, We're distinct in, in function. We're distinct in problem solving and using gifts in performing leadership functions in different ways. Man and woman were given the gift of sex and of intimacy to create human life as a way to reflect the joy and the intimacy of the unity and the unity of, of God himself. So created equal yet unique. This was God's design. This was God's paradigm for all marriages. He calls it headship and helper. Equality, uniqueness, partnership, intimacy, good work, creating family, creating culture. God walked with them. They were with freedom in his presence and with each other. That's, that's the picture in the garden. And then the fall. 
right? Genesis 3, the story of temptation of Adam and Eve. But this one verse describes this inversion of roles. Listen to this. Eve also gave some fruit to her husband who was with her. Instead of leading his wife, Adam followed her into sin. There's actually a book called The Silence of Adam that from the opening pages of Scripture, there's a passivity. There's an unwillingness to step into his actual God-given leadership role that has set humanity on a, on a chaos course, this refusal to step into his leadership. The biggest hindrance to men actually leading, I think, is the fear of failure. And that fear of failure shows up in different ways, um, either hyper-masculinity or passivity. We can fall off the horse, guys. We can fall off the horse with um, the abuse of leadership in oppressive ways, or we can fall off the horse with the abdication of leadership and, and rebellion to God in passivity. So both are missing the mark when it comes to, to our actual calling to be servant leaders. And women... Well, we never miss the mark, <laughs> uh, except when we do. Um, yeah, so I think for women that, you know, we also can miss the mark, and we either fall off the side on of the side of control, um, which I, th- I think uh, many of us find ourselves there, just kind of desperately grasping for control when uh, we're being asked to submit. And also, we can fall off the side or of even having a reluctance to use our femininity to bless our marriage, right, to bless our husband's. Uh, to bless our families. Um, I think it's really important. Often you, you hear about this call to submission, and um, it seems like God thinks that men are more important or better than women, and, and Rob's been very clear to say that there's an equality, um, and I think that that is true. I think that's biblical. I think that's sound. I think that we have to understand that if we're going to understand submission. It's sort of like um, it's a team. It's a partnership, and there are roles Both roles are very important. They're crucial, um, but they're different. And I think that um, for every marriage, um, there is a challenge because it's made up of two people. Every Christian marriage, this is a challenge because it's made up of two individuals who are still being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Read, we're imperfect. We tend towards sin, and we need the help of Jesus in us, the spirit in us to empower us, to help us. Uh, to do this, right? And so each of us in our fallen nature has, the, has a proclivity towards something. And it's interesting, we talked about kind of the team role thing, and I, and I think this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for Rob and me, and we'd like to share a little bit about what it looks like for us to walk this out, not in a prescriptive way, but just in a way to help you understand how the fall has impacted each of us and how we're working that out with the Lord as we seek to obey what he has for us. Um, it's funny because when I was growing up and playing sports and on teams, since we're using a team analogy, um, I was always that girl who loved to be in those kind of like high pressure situations. Okay. I loved to be in charge when we were down one point or one run. Um, I love, give me the ball right? Point guard, I'll tell you all where to go. I'll set the pace. That's how this is. I'm fine with that. I'm comfortable there. I like it. I like the adrenaline. I like the pressure. I like to be in charge. And me, not so much. 
Not so much, yeah. So I, I played at this little dinky high school in Oklahoma where you got to play everything, right? And so, <clears throat> <clears throat> but I was always the, uh, like I was the wide receiver, not the quarterback. And I was the wide receiver who actually took in the plays. And so even the ways that I took in the plays was, was, was my coach would say, tell them this, and then he would cuss. Right? He would say blankety blank blank blank, and then I would go out to the huddle and I would I would interpret. Right? It was like let's tame this down a little bit. Right? I was I was the wide receiver, not the quarterback. I in college I played at this little Bible college, and and my coach actually stopped in the middle of the game in in our little huddle and said, Rob, your role is not to shoot. Just pass the ball. <laughs> And so we were very different, right? It's like Leah's like this type A, take charge, give me the ball. And I'm like, here you go. <laughs> and that has played out in our, in our marriage. So for 27 years, we've been wrestling what it, with what it looks like for a type A woman to submit to a type B guy. It's been fun. It's been real fun. But it's real. And just because I'm wired, maybe I'm wired, I am wired in certain ways. The Lord has wired each of us uniquely. I have also responded to my circumstances in some fear and in some self-protection. And I've also determined that if I want something done right, I have to do it myself. No, no pride in that at all. Right? So some of, some of this is the way I'm wired. I'm just naturally maybe wired to do some things. Some other of it is actually based in fear rather than love. And so for us working this out, sometimes when I'm most afraid that things won't go my way or things won't go right, or I'm afraid that type B guy over here isn't going to step in, he's not going to come through, which just reinforces his lie that he's not enough, by the way. Am I helping him to become the man he's come to be when I step in and I take charge? I'm not. Yeah, and it's the other side as well. It's like I'm I know I lead toward passivity. And this, this narrative that, that you are not enough has been reinforced over and over and over. And so, so there is always a, a reluctance to step in to, and to take charge because it's like, what if I get this wrong? You know, the fear of failure can just be paralyzing. Fear is paralyzing. covenant <laughs> Jesus <laughs> because we said we would yeah we're, we're going to talk about a little bit of that but but honestly I mean that is the beauty of covenant there I was listening to a song last night by Brooke Frazier and Aqualung who I always want to call Aquaman um, <laughs> and it and I can't remember the the name of the song you could look it up but it, but the idea is that we are tethered together and sometimes we're trying to figure out how to loosen the knot because we think that if we could each do our own thing, we'd be better off. But that's not actually true. <laughs> um, we're bound together in covenant. We made that choice. We made that promise with the Lord. And he is working out our sanctification in us as we submit to one another. Um, so it is, it, it is hard, but that's what we promise to do. And it is actually 
the covenant. It is actually the context of this, of this promise that we've made to one another. God works that out differently for single people. I'm not saying the only way you get sanctified is if you get married. But there is an intense kind of furnace of marriage that requires that I am other-centered when my heart is wired to be me-centered. And, and that we get that to, to that in Ephesians. It's like the call is to mutual submission, right? It's to, to both come, come under. And so because of the fact that we, we all are bent toward our own self-centeredness. Yeah, so I think that to answer some of that with the type A girl, I think that for me, submission to Rob, as I understand it biblically, doesn't mean that I don't use my strengths. It doesn't mean that I don't use the intellect God has given me. I have a pretty decent brain. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's, it works, and it works pretty well. He's not the only one with a brain. He's not the only one who's gifted. God didn't call me to enter this marriage um, to, to shelve my gifts. But for me, the question is, am I, am I using my gifts to serve him and to love and honor him in the way that God has called me to, or am I trying to take back the reins? Am I trying to subvert his leadership? What's my motivation? What does it look like for him to bless me, to use my gifts, to ask me what I think about things? I mean, that's a part of our marriage is we have lots of conversations about lots of things, and I usually have way too many words. I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> um, but we're constantly working out what it looks like um, for each of our strengths to come into play. But there has to be order in that. Someone has to be in charge and someone else has to be the supportive role. It's, it's what we're working out still. Even as we wrote this, we were working out together what it meant to do this with headship and help, even as we were trying to work together to think about how we would share with you today. Oh, yeah, I think, that, I think that what we can't lose sight of as we look at this in a biblical context is that as I'm being called to submit to his headship, it's actually an opportunity for me to participate in what the Lord has called me to in identifying with Christ. Just as Jesus, if you remember, in the garden, <laughs> submitted uh, to the Father, right? Father, if there's any way that you could take this cup from me, this suffering from me, but not my will yours, right? And so... I get to participate in the submission uh, that Christ exemplified for us in his relationship to the Father. And that's a really good segue to our last passage, and we'll wrap this up here. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your own husbands. Submission to your own husband, not to all men. That's really clear. As to the Lord, that's 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 your motivation, honoring husband is honoring the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. And now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with washing of water and the word. Um, and then he gets to, uh, for this reason, this is, this is out of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. What I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Yeah, for Paul, the example of submission 
and sacrifice both illustrate and are rooted in, I think that's important, they're rooted in the way Christ loves the church. Paul calls the church the bride of Christ. So this isn't an oppressor doormat model. This is a love and respect model. Very, very different things. This is a picture of total and mutual commitment to each other that's centered on Jesus. It's a reminder that the ultimate purpose of marriage is to reflect the profound mystery of God's love in and through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. The wife submits to the husband's leadership with all she has, and the husband gives all he has to love her well. Um, um, We're editing on the fly. as we go here. Yep. Um, I think you already said that. Cool. Here's the. Yep. Submit to me, woman. I am. Um, still in God's design, the, the husband bears the weight of responsibility for caring for her, of being the spiritual leader, of taking the initiative on behalf of the family, of taking the brunt. The, the picture is the wife tucking in behind, right? So together, um, Leah and I have worked through and understand that um, the husband has a responsibility for kind of the, the, making the final decision on some stuff when after uh, a, lot of, a lot of conversation, we just can't come to a consensus, which is kind of what you were asking before. And that honestly has only happened just a handful of times in 27 years of marriage. And um, in each case, I think we had the same end goal in mind, but we were just coming at it from different angles. And so Leah, uh, I think, was, was challenged to step back and, and to trust me and ultimately to trust God. And I was challenged to trust the Lord to actually lead in that. Um, but even in that scenario, the husband is called to act sacrificially on behalf of his wife. He bears the responsibility before God for using that authority uh, in a way that is honoring. So Paul says, husbands, love your wives. And, and uh, th- that would have been scandalous in that culture because a husband wasn't called to love, but just to provide for. Um, there was no obligation except for that. So this kind of love is covenantal. It's sacrificial. It's agape. It's like, I am not going anywhere. It's unconditional. Um, as Christ loved the church, he died for her. It, it takes the initiative. It makes good on the promise. It sacrifices so that the wife can flourish. And that's the picture of Jesus. In the picture of Jesus, this is what's really cool. It gets lived out by both the husband and the wife, by both the guy and the woman. That both man and woman get to play the role of Jesus in the marriage. Um, it requires a lot of grace, and it requires a lot of promise. The, the world's way of doing relationship is transactional. Um, it's 50-50, you know. Uh, why don't you just meet me in the middle? I'm losing my mind just a little. <laughs> Stupidest song ever. Um, thank you. Thank you for that applause. Um, 
You know, I'll sacrifice if she deserves it. I'll submit if he agrees with me. You know, uh, it's no, God is talking about covenant. It's talking about a hundred hundred. It's you give yourself fully in marriage as a way to bring glory to God and to reflect the way that Jesus has given himself fully to his bride. Jesus said, uh, Paul said, I'm talking about Christ in the church. Christ doesn't say to sinners, let's go 50-50 on this, you know. No, Jesus is, is all in. And this is the great mystery of marriage. This is how marriage plays out the gospel each and every day. There's a, there's a bigger reason. There's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger mission and vision than just our happiness. Tim Keller says the gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. This is the only kind of relationship, this relationship with with Jesus that will actually transform us. If you want to have a marriage that has purpose and that has grace, then Jesus has to be at the center of it. In fact, if we talk about all of our relationships are meant to reflect the gospel. We take up the cross and we follow Jesus. So, I want us to have a time of communion today. And so if you are getting that ready, um, if, if you go ahead and pass that out for us this morning. And um, band, if you would come up and... We're going to lead toward uh, wrapping up our time, but um, actually, let me read this. This is cool. Um, uh, each, each Sunday morning, we have uh, a, a prayer team that meets and, and prays, and Megan came in with this passage. This is out of Revelation. So our... Our marriage, as Rick read out of Isaiah, our, our marriage points, uh, any, any, our relationships, but specifically our marriage, is supposed to point to Jesus and his bride, right? But what's coming for all of us is this wedding feast <laughs> when Jesus returns. And so um, it says, I heard the sound of a, a masked choir. Hallelujah, the master reigns. Our God, the sovereign strong. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice. Let's give him the glory. The marriage of the lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. She was given a bridal gown of bright and shining linen. The linen is the righteousness of the saints. And the angel said, write this. Blessed are those invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. He added, these are the true words of God. And that's the good news of the gospel, that we've been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Oh, sweet grace, how great.